Chapter One, Part Two of Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds by Charles Mackay, Volume Two, Chapter One, The Crusades, Part Two. But Italy could not be expected to furnish all the aid required, and the Pope crossed the Alps to inspire the fierce and powerful nobility and chivalrous population of Gaul. His boldness in entering the territory and placing himself in the power of his foe, King Philip of France, is not the least surprising feature of his mission. Some have imagined that cool policy alone actuated him, while others assert that it was mere zeal as warm and as blind as that of peter the hermit the latter opinion seems to be the true one society did not calculate the consequences of what it was doing every man seemed to act from impulse only and the pope in throwing himself into the heart of france acted as much from impulse as the thousands who responded to his call a council was eventually summoned to meet him at clermont in Auvergne to consider the state of the church reform abuses and above all make preparations for the war it was in the midst of an extremely cold winter and the ground was covered with snow during seven days the council sat with closed doors while immense crowds from all parts of france flocked into the town in expectation that the pope himself would address the people all the towns and villages for miles around were filled with the multitude even the fields were encumbered with people who unable to procure lodging pitched their tents under the trees and by the wayside all the neighborhood presented the appearance of a vast camp during the seven days deliberation a sentence of excommunication was passed upon king philip for adultery with bertrand de montfort countess of anjou and for disobedience to the supreme authority of the apostolic see this bold step impressed the people with reverence for so stern a church which in the discharge of its duty showed itself no respecter of persons their love and their fear were alike increased and they were prepared to listen with more intense devotion to the preaching of so righteous and inflexible a pastor the great square before the cathedral church of clermont became every instant more densely crowded as the hour drew nigh when the pope was to address the populace issuing from the church in his full canonicals surrounded by his cardinals and bishops in all the splendor of romish ecclesiastical costume the pope stood before the populace on a high scaffolding erected for the occasion and covered with scarlet cloth a brilliant array of bishops and cardinals surrounded him and among them umbler in rank but more important in the world's eye the hermit peter dressed in his simple and austere habiliments Historians differ as to whether or not Peter addressed the crowd, but as all agree that he was present, it seems reasonable to suppose that he spoke. But it was the oration of the Pope that was most important. As he lifted up his hands to ensure attention, every voice immediately became still. He began by detailing the miseries endured by their brethren in the Holy Land, how the plains of Palestine were desolated by the outrageous heathen who with the sword and the firebrand carried wailing into the dwellings and flames into the possessions of the faithful how christian wives and daughters were defiled by pagan lust how the altars of the true god were desecrated and the relics of the saints trodden under foot you continued the eloquent pontiff and urban the second was one of the most eloquent men of the day 
you who hear me and who have received the true faith and been endowed by god with power and strength and greatness of soul whose ancestors have been the prop of christendom and whose kings have put a barrier against the progress of the infidel i call upon you to wipe off these impurities from the face of the earth and lift your oppressed fellow christians from the depths into which they have been trampled the sepulchre of christ is possessed by the heathen the sacred place is dishonored by their vileness o brave knights and faithful people offspring of invincible fathers ye will not degenerate from your ancient renown ye will not be restrained from embarking in this great cause by the tender ties of wife or little ones but will remember the words of the saviour of the world himself whosoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me whosoever shall abandon for my name's sake his house or his brethren or his sisters or his father or his mother or his wife or his children or his lands shall receive a hundredfold and shall inherit eternal life the warmth of the pontiff communicated itself to the crowd and the enthusiasm of the people broke out several times ere he concluded his address he went on to portray not only the spiritual but the temporal advantages that would accrue to those who took up arms in the service of the cross palestine was he said a land flowing with milk and honey and precious in the sight of god as the scene of the grand events which had saved mankind that land he promised should be divided among them moreover they should have full pardon for all their offences either against god or man go then he added in expiation of your sins and go assured that after this world shall have passed away imperishable glory shall be yours in the world which is to come the enthusiasm was no longer to be restrained and loud shouts interrupted the speaker the people exclaiming as if one voice du le volte du le volte with great presence of mind urban took advantage of the outburst and as soon as silence was obtained continued dear brethren to-day is shown forth in you that which the lord has said by his evangelist when two or three are gathered together in my name there will i be in the midst of them to bless them if the lord god had not been in your souls you would not all have pronounced the same words or rather god himself pronounced them by your lips for it was he that put them in your hearts be they then your war-cry in the combat for those words came forth from god let the army of the lord when it rushes upon his enemies shout but that one cry du le volte du le volte let whoever is inclined to devote himself to this holy cause make it a solemn engagement and bear the cross of the lord either on his breast or his brow till he set out and let him who is ready to begin his march place the holy emblem on his shoulders in memory of that precept of our saviour he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me the news of this council spread to the remotest parts of europe in an incredibly short space of time long before the fleetest horsemen could have brought the intelligence it was known by the people in distant provinces a fact which was considered as nothing less than supernatural but the subject was in everybody's mouth and the minds of men were prepared for the result the enthusiastic merely asserted what they wished and the event tallied with their prediction this was however quite enough in those days for a miracle and as a miracle every one regarded it for several months after the council of clermont france and germany presented a singular spectacle the pious the fanatic the needy the dissolute the young and the old even women and children and the halt and the lame enrolled themselves by hundreds 
In every village the clergy were busied in keeping up the excitement, promising eternal rewards to those who assumed the Red Cross, and fulminating the most awful denunciations against all the worldly-minded who refused or even hesitated. Every debtor who joined the crusade was freed by the papal edict from the claims of his creditors. Outlaws of every grade were made equal with the honest upon the same conditions. The property of those who went was placed under the protection of the church, and St. Paul and St. Peter themselves were believed to descend from their high abode to watch over the chattels of the absent pilgrims. Signs and portents were seen in the air to increase the fervor of the multitude. An aurora borealis of unusual brilliancy appeared, and thousands of the crusaders came out to gaze upon it, prostrating themselves upon the earth in adoration. It was thought to be a sure prognostic of the interposition of the Most High, and a representation of his armies fighting with and overthrowing the infidels. Reports of wonders were everywhere rife. A monk had seen two gigantic warriors on horseback, the one representing a Christian and the other a Turk, fighting in the sky with flaming swords. The Christian, of course, overcoming the Paynim. Myriads of stars were said to have fallen from heaven, each representing the fall of a pagan foe. It was believed at the same time that the Emperor Charlemagne would rise from the grave and lead on to victory the embattled armies of the Lord. A singular feature of the popular madness was the enthusiasm of the women. Everywhere they encouraged their lovers and husbands to forsake all things for the holy war. Many of them burned the sign of the cross upon their breasts and arms and colored the wound with a red dye as a lasting memorial of their zeal. Others, still more zealous, impressed the mark by the same means upon the tender limbs of young children and infants at the breast. Gieber de Nogen tells of a monk who made a large incision upon his forehead in the form of a cross which he colored with some powerful ingredient, telling the people that an angel had done it when he was asleep. The monk appears to have been more of a rogue than a fool, for he contrived to fare more sumptuously than any of his brother pilgrims upon the strength of his sanctity. The crusaders everywhere gave him presents of food and money, and he became quite fat ere he arrived at Jerusalem, notwithstanding the fatigues of the way. If he had acknowledged in the first place that he had made the wound himself, he would not have been thought more holy than his fellows. But the story of the angel was a clincher. All those who had property of any description rushed to the mart to change it into hard cash. Lands and houses could be had for a quarter of their value, while arms and accoutrements of war rose in the same proportion. Corn, which had been excessively dear in anticipation of a year of scarcity, suddenly became plentiful, and such was the diminution in value of provisions that seven sheep were sold for five deniers. The nobles mortgaged their estates for mere trifles to Jews and unbelievers, or conferred charters of immunity upon the towns and communes within their fiefs, for sums which, a few years previously, they would have rejected with disdain. The farmer endeavored to sell his plough and the artisan his tools to purchase a sword for the deliverance of Jerusalem. Women disposed of their trinkets for the same purpose. During the spring and summer of this year, 1096, the roads teemed with crusaders all hastening to the towns and villages appointed as the rendezvous of the district. Some were on horseback some in carts, and some came down the rivers in boats and rafts, bringing their wives and children all eager to go to Jerusalem. Very few knew where Jerusalem was. Some thought it fifty thousand miles away, and others imagined it was but a month's journey. While at the sight of every town or castle the children exclaimed, Is that Jerusalem? Is that the city? 
Parties of knights and nobles might be seen traveling eastward and amusing themselves as they went with the nightly diversion of hawking to lighten the fatigues of the way. Gieber de Nogen, who did not write from hearsay but from actual observation, said the enthusiasm was so contagious that when any one heard the orders of the pontiff he went instantly to solicit his neighbors and friends to join with him in the way of God, for so they called the proposed expedition. The Counts Palatine were full of the desire to undertake the journey, and all the inferior knights were animated with the same zeal. Even the poor caught the flame so ardently that no one paused to think of the inadequacy of his means or to consider whether he ought to yield up his farm, his vineyard, or his fields. Each one set about selling his property at as low a price as if he had been held in some horrible captivity, and sought to pay his ransom without loss of time. Those who had not determined upon the journey joked and laughed at those who were thus disposing of their goods at such ruinous prices, prophesying that the expedition would be miserable and their return worse. But they held this language only for a day. The next they were suddenly seized with the same frenzy as the rest. Those who had been loudest in their jeers gave up all their property for a few crowns, and set out with those they had laughed so hard at a few hours before. In most cases the laugh was turned against them, for when it became known that a man was hesitating, his more zealous neighbors sent him a present of a knitting-needle, or a distaff, to show their contempt of him. There was no resisting this, so that the fear of ridicule contributed its fair contingent to the armies of the Lord. Another effect of the crusade was the religious obedience with which it inspired the people and the nobility for that singular institution, the truce of God. At the commencement of the eleventh century the clergy of France, sympathizing for the woes of the people but unable to diminish them, by repressing the rapacity and insolence of the feudal chiefs, endeavored to promote universal good will by the promulgation of the famous Peace of God. All who conformed to it bound themselves by oath not to take revenge for any injury, not to enjoy the fruits of prosperity usurped from others, nor to use deadly weapons, in reward of which they would receive remission of all their sins. However benevolent the intention of this peace, it led to nothing but perjury, and violence reigned as uncontrolled as before. In the year 1041 another attempt was made to soften the angry passions of the semi-barbarous chiefs, and the truce of God was solemnly proclaimed. The truce lasted from the Wednesday evening to the Monday morning of every week, in which interval it was strictly forbidden to recur to violence on any pretext, or to seek revenge for any injury. It was impossible to civilize men by these means. Few even promised to become peaceable for so unconscionable a period as five days a week. Or if they did, they made ample amends on the two days left open to them. The truce was afterwards shortened from the Saturday evening to the Monday morning. But little or no diminution of violence and bloodshed was the consequence. At the Council of Claremont, Urban II again solemnly proclaimed the truce. So strong was the religious feeling that everyone hastened to obey. All the minor passions disappeared before the grand passion of crusading. The feudal chief ceased to oppress, the robber to plunder, the people to complain. But one idea was in all hearts, and there seemed to be no room for any other. The encampments of these heterogeneous multitudes offered a singular aspect. Those vassals who ranged themselves under the banners of their lord erected tents around his castle while those who undertook the war on their own account constructed booths and huts in the neighborhood of the towns or villages, preparatory to their joining some popular leader of the expedition. The meadows of France were covered with tents. As the belligerents were to have remission of all their sins on their arrival in Palestine, 
hundreds of them gave themselves up to the most unbounded licentiousness the courtesan with the red cross upon her shoulders plied her shameless trade with sensual pilgrims without scruple on either side the lover of good cheer gave loose rein to his appetite and drunkenness and debauchery flourished their zeal in the service of the lord was to wipe out all faults and follies and they had the same surety of salvation as the rigid anchorite this reasoning had charms for the ignorant and the sounds of lewd revelry and the voice of prayer rose at the same instant from the camp it is now time to speak of the leaders of the expedition great multitudes ranged themselves under the command of peter the hermit whom as the originator they considered the most appropriate leader of the war others joined the banner of a bold adventurer whom history has dignified with no other name than that of gautier sans avoir or walter the penniless but who is represented as having been of noble family and well skilled in the art of war a third multitude from germany flocked around the standard of a monk named gottschalk of whom nothing is known except that he was a fanatic of the deepest dye all these bands which together are said to have amounted to three hundred thousand men women and children were composed of the vilest rascality of europe without discipline principle or true courage they rushed through the nations like a pestilence spreading terror and death wherever they went the first multitude that set forth was led by walter the penniless early in the spring of ten ninety six within a very few months after the council of clermont each man of that irregular host aspired to be his own master like their nominal leader each was poor to penury and trusted for subsistence on his journey to the chances of the road rolling through germany like a tide they entered hungary where at first they were received with some degree of kindness by the people the latter had not yet caught sufficient of the fire of enthusiasm to join the crusade themselves but were willing enough to forward the cause by aiding those embarked in it unfortunately this good understanding did not last long the swarm were not contented with food for their necessities but craved for luxuries also they attacked and plundered the dwellings of the country people and thought nothing of murder where resistance was offered on their arrival before Semlin, the outraged Hungarians collected in large numbers, and attacking the rear of the crusading host, slew a great many of the stragglers, and taking away their arms and crosses, affixed them as trophies to the walls of the city. Walter appears to have been in no mood or condition to make reprisals, for his army, destructive as a plague of locusts, when plunder urged them on, were useless against any regular attack from a determined enemy their rear continued to be thus harassed by the wrathful hungarians until they were fairly out of their territory on his entrance into bulgaria walter met with no better fate the cities and towns refused to let him pass the villages denied him provisions and the citizens and the country people uniting slaughtered his followers by hundreds the progress of the army was more like a retreat than an advance but as it was impossible to stand still walter continued his course till he arrived at constantinople with a force which famine and the sword had diminished to one-third of its original number the greater multitude led by the enthusiastic hermit followed close upon his heels with a bulky train of baggage and women and children sufficient to form a host of themselves if it were possible to find a rabble more vile than the army of walter the penniless it was that led by peter the hermit being better provided with means they were not reduced to the necessity of pillage in their progress through hungary and had they taken any other route than that which led through semlin might perhaps have traversed the country without molestation on their arrival before that city their fury was raised at seeing the arms and red crosses of their predecessors hanging as trophies over the gates 
their pent-up ferocity exploded at the sight the city was tumultuously attacked and the besiegers entering not by dint of bravery but of superior numbers it was given up to all the horrors which follow when victory brutality and licentiousness are linked together every evil passion was allowed to revel with impunity and revenge lust and avarice each had its hundreds of victims in unhappy semlin any maniac can kindle a conflagration but it may require many wise men to put it out peter the hermit had blown the popular fury into a flame but to cool it again was beyond his power his followers rioted unrestrained until the fear of retaliation warned them to desist when the king of hungary was informed of the disasters of semlin he marched with a sufficient force to chastise the hermit who at the news broke up his camp and retreated towards the morava a broad and rapid stream that joins the danube a few miles to the eastward of belgrade here a party of indignant bulgarians awaited him and so harassed him as to make the passage of the river a task both of difficulty and danger great numbers of his infatuated followers perished in the waters and many fell under the swords of the bulgarians the ancient chronicles do not mention the amount of the hermit's loss at this passage but represented in general terms as very great at nisa the duke of bulgaria fortified himself in fear of an assault but peter having learned a little wisdom from experience thought it best to avoid hostilities he passed three nights in quietness under the walls, and the duke, not wishing to exasperate unnecessarily so fierce and rapacious a host, allowed the townspeople to supply them with provisions. Peter took his departure peaceably on the following morning, but some German vagabonds falling behind the main body of the army set fire to the mills and house of a Bulgarian with whom it appears they had had some dispute on the previous evening. The citizens of Nisa, who had throughout mistrusted the crusaders and were prepared for the worst, sallied out immediately and took signal vengeance. The spoilers were cut to pieces and the townspeople pursuing the hermit captured all the women and children who had lagged in the rear, and a great quantity of baggage. Peter hereupon turned round and marched back to Nisa to demand an explanation of the Duke of Bulgaria. The latter fairly stated the provocation given, and the hermit could urge nothing in palliation of so gross an outrage. A negotiation was entered into which promised to be successful, and the Bulgarians were about to deliver up the women and children when a party of undisciplined crusaders, acting solely upon their own suggestion, endeavored to scale the walls and seize upon the town. Peter in vain exerted his authority. The confusion became general and after a short but desperate battle the crusaders threw down their arms and fled in all directions their vast host was completely routed the slaughter being so great among them as to be counted not by hundreds but by thousands it is said that the hermit fled from this fatal field to a forest a few miles from nisa abandoned by every human creature it would be curious to know whether after so dire a reverse his impierced breast sharp sorrow did in thousand pieces rive or whether his fiery zeal still rose superior to calamity and pictured the eventual triumph of his cause. He, so lately the leader of a hundred thousand men, was now a solitary skulker in the forests, liable at every instance to be discovered by some pursuing Bulgarian and cut off in mid-career. Chance at last brought him within sight of an eminence where two or three of his bravest knights had collected five hundred of the stragglers. These gladly received the hermit in a consultation having taken place, it was resolved to gather together the scattered remnants of the army. Fires were lighted on the hill, and scouts sent out in all directions for the fugitives. 
Horns were sounded at intervals to make known that friends were near, and before nightfall the hermit saw himself at the head of seven thousand men. During the succeeding day he was joined by twenty thousand more, and with this miserable remnant of his force he pursued his route towards Constantinople. The bones of the rest moldered in the forests of Bulgaria. End of chapter 1, part 2. Recording by Philip Gould.